Fantastic to have your company this Wednesday, the 12th of August. I'm your host, Lucy Zellich, and joining me as my co-host, it's great to have him back in the chair. Welcome to you, Nick Stoll, okay, Zellich. How are you, son? You well? I'm very well. It's a very exciting time. Obviously, we've got a great guest in Andy on today, but also it's great. You know, we've got A-League every night. We've got Europa League and Champions League every morning. It's, it's just a great time to be a football fan. It's a great time to be a football fan, and it's a great time to be joining us on this show because you touched on him there, the great Andy Banal, former Socceroo writer, player agent, former minder of David Beckham. He joins us today. You are one of our very own collectibles here in Australia, Andy, um, and it's delightful to have your company. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us, how are you, and where are you coming to us from at the moment? Well, I'm, I'm in Canberra at the moment, um, uh, still working on, on the football management business, a um, little bit of focus on... Um, my daughter, her husband, who's a UFC fighter, he's one of the top boys in the world in, in the lightweight division. Um, I'm working with boxers here in Canberra, always looking out for talent. And um, yeah, so that's where we're at. And, you know, in the process, writing a, a book about my life journey. So um, uh, it'd be great to, to tell some, some of those little stories today. And, and I really appreciate you guys having me on. No, it's great to have your company. And, of course, as it is, all of our guests tuning in today, we've got a couple of our regulars already popping up. And hello all, hope you're well. Santino Mamone, great to have you guys back on deck. You join us every week and it's always a pleasure. And, of course, to have the company of someone like Andy Bernal who's going to tell us some brilliant stories here today um, is something that we're looking very forward to. But tell us first and foremost, Andy, um, you know, the the impact that COVID-19 has had on you and the work that you're doing at the moment because everyone's feeling it. Look, I think it's, it's, it's kind of change the whole dynamic you know from a from a work point of view from a footballer point of view from from a fan point of view um you know i watch some of the games on tv um you know there's not much atmosphere at the grounds it's really it's bizarre you know i watched the fa cup final the other night you know and you know the players are standing there for for the national anthem and they're standing there to nobody and and it's really impacted the game but those of us those clubs, those people, those fans, those players that, you know, put themselves in a position to post-COVID, you know, be at the forefront of everything um, will benefit, you know, from from this horrible time that we're in. But, you know, it, it's unfortunate, um, you know, in terms of football, um, you know, the agency business, it's the marketplace has changed. Mm-hmm. And talk us through that a little bit more because I'd be interested to know how it's impacted uh, player agents and, of course, movements now, discussions around future dealings with clubs and, and sort of the expenditure that they're looking to outlay um, as a result of everything that's hit, uh, thank, no thanks to the pandemic, of course. How has that impacted things in the business that you're doing? Well, the uh, the clubs now with, with no supporters, you know, going into the grounds, um, you know, there's a lot of revenue lost there. So, yeah, that changes the amount of money they can pay players in wages, it changes the amount of, uh, you know, TV, you know, revenue they get. Uh, it's changed on, on all on all levels. Um, you know, transfer fees, players, uh, you know, teams now will be looking for, um, you know, people to get into the club, you know, in a much cheaper scenario, in a much te- cheaper way. Um, so, and some players at all levels will have to understand that, you know, the days of, of, of earning a lot, a lot of money, um, that'll still occur with the, with the top, top teams. Um, but most people are going to have to take a pay cut, you know, for a while. Stolich, some questions for you from for Andy? 
Yeah, Andy, I just wanted to know uh, kind of your thoughts on uh, where the kind of A-League is at as someone who, you know, you've played um, in the old NSL and you've played overseas and you've, you've, you've seen it all. But where do you think right now we've had a lot of turmoil? Are you, are you hopeful for the A-League? What are your thoughts? Look, I think, um, you know, the, the, the Fox deal, you know, is there for a little bit. How long that'll last in the next few years is is, is unknown um, it, it's been impacted like like all leagues around the world um, and it's a league where um, you know financially all the clubs you know are constantly battling you know to, to level the books to to find money to find resources um, so it is going to impact the a league um, uh, the level of football uh, you know might it might stay the same, but it may give an opportunity to young talent coming through. I really believe now, A-League clubs, um, if I was in charge of an A-League club, I'd start throwing in young kids, 16, 17, 18, 19. There you go, lads. Um, you know, those kids will play for a quarter, half the wages of what other people are playing for now um, and, and have no fear with them. You know, and we may just help the nation's, you know, football on a whole, you know, producing more talented players, giving talented youngsters an opportunity earlier. What have been your views around that? Because it's certainly a topic of conversation that's really dominated the rounds over the last few months since the pandemic really struck. I mean, it's forced us to unearth a lot of existing issues and, and tackle them under the microscope. But this this problem of not being able to, you know, produce players at the rate that we used to, Andy, it's a big talking point, of course, for yourself, um, exposure to the Australian Institute of Sport, coming through with the golden generation. Uh, you would be best placed to comment on that. But what's changed? And why aren't we, from your perspective, able to produce uh, the players? that we had in previous generations? That's a good question. Uh, I think the message that's been given to youngsters these days, um, society has changed, um, but the message to young kids has changed in terms of what is required of them uh, on a football pitch. Um, I also think that a lot of us uh, of my generation in the younger days, we, we came through as youngsters and we had a lot of migrants that were playing back then, you know, uh, migrants from Spain, from Italy, from the former Yugoslavia, um, from all places like that. And the knowledge that they gave us, you know, even in a dressing room with a few words, um, really impacted us uh, on what was required to play top-level football. Um, you know, I see the academies now, and um, for me, the greatest thing is the, the, the team – and the individual message that has been given to youngsters about what's required at top level um, is sometimes not what it should be. And it, it may be in part due to uh, the politically correct society that we live in. You can't say this to a kid. You can't say that to a kid. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, the truth needs to be said. And that's the reality of football. Um, you know, uh, I go to some of the A-League academies. Kids can't hit a ball. Kids can't tackle. You know, if you say to a young defender, why don't you put your elbow up or do this? Oh, oh that's illegal. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's illegal. Yeah, but only if you get caught. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so, so I just think what we're, here's my opinion on, on the football youngsters that we're producing now. We're producing half decent kids that are technically quite right, that can, you know, 
uh, you know, a lot of passing, a lot of this, a lot of that, but we've forgotten to be warriors. You know, mm. we've forgotten to be, um, you know, people that go out there and win at all costs. It's a battle. Um, you know, kids, kids, you know, they, they run up the pitch, you know, centre-halves when they get a corner. Uh, the two centre-halves run up, and if the ball doesn't come to where they're at, they don't even move. And then they jog back to their position, and that's it. Uh, you know, kill people to get to that ball. Elbows, whatever is necessary, um, you know, like Cahill does, uh, like we all used to back then. So, um, But these times are given a great opportunity for for clubs, for A-League clubs. Throw three or four of your best 18, 19-year-olds in. That's what used to happen to us before. You know, your brother Ned, myself, you know, the Slaters, the Arnolds, the, all these people, the Vadukas. We were thrown in, you know, at, at 18, 17, 18, 19. Uh, you know, I was playing in Spain at 19, 20, La Liga, La Liga 2. Who does that? You know, but it was, first and foremost, I was a warrior. And my coach that had won six European Cups with Real Madrid, he knew that. My ball was, my, my job was to eliminate the 10 on the opposition side. And he would say, I don't care how you do it. Because when I was at Real Madrid, I would eliminate the opposition's 10 and then I would give it to Puskas, to Gento, to Di Stefano. Mm -hmm. And I've got six European Cup medals in my lounge room, son. You can't argue with that. But we're not no. looking for you guys anymore, Andy. That's the problem. Before I bounce back to you, Solich, for more questions. We're not leaning on the, the former greats of the game enough to judge where we're at. I mean, we're starting to make some inroads now. I know that Football Federation Australia, uh, spearheaded by the new CEO, James Johnson, has, has said that you know he'd like to involve more of the ex in the game, but why haven't we looked to, to your expertise um, and, and the golden generation? You know from previous eras more, Andy. Why not? Well, I think it's a mystery. I think there was a, a period for, for 10, 12, 15 years, well, 10 years for sure, you know, that I'm based in Canberra and I'd go down to the AOS and, and we'd have the, the Dutch and the Belgian people in and um, it, it was almost... Um, we weren't kind of welcomed with open arms down there. I, I don't know why. Um, I think the older generations have a lot of um, experience, a lot of football knowledge that, that we could, you know, impart and, 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 and give to the, the, young, the young kids coming through. Um, but there was a, I think it was a horrible period for 10 years. You know, I'd go down to the AOS and, and made to feel, be made to feel very unwelcome. Um, down there so it was um it wasn't a, a nice time and I, I really believe that um you know from my experience of, of, of being at Real Madrid for a while you know around a lot of the top European clubs um you find that a lot of their older players come back and for example you could go to Real Madrid and they'd have three four players that have played two three four hundred games for Real Madrid um working with the under 12s 13s 14s in the academy and not only on a, on a technical kind of philosophical level, you know, a cultural level of, you know, that those players can, you know, give to the young kids coming through. Um, not only on that level, but for a young, a young boy or girl to, to see um, one of their heroes, one of their superstars that's played at the Bernabeu, three, four hundred games, that's played for Spain. And he's their coach. He's there with them in the dressing room, in the team bus. It's kind of like... 
you know, it empowers them. It gives them, an, uh, you know, the vision, the thought that I can be like him or her one day. Mm-hmm. Just, just my opinion. Mm. Stolich? Yeah, Andy, I wanted to ask, you know, you've had one of the most kind of incredible lives, I think, in Australian football. But, you know, let's kind of take it back to the start where it all began, Canberra, the AAS. Tell us, what was it like, you know, your story, your how you grew up and all that? What was it like for you back in Canberra? Yeah, well, I um, I grew up here and I was born here in 1966 in Canberra and I grew up, you know, like most of us here. Um, primary school, high school, uh, I was probably a better rugby league player than a soccer player, as it was known at the time. Um, uh, yeah, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play um, rugby league or, or cricket for Australia. Um, a lot of it was maybe due to, you know, the stigma back then that if you're European, you were called a wog. So maybe my kind of mindset to assimilate more into you know, the Australian fabric of society was, you know, maybe if I play cricket or rugby league for Australia, I won't be called a wog anymore. Because um, yeah, what was yes. your parents' background? My mum and dad were Spanish. So, okay. um, so yeah, I grew up in a Canberra that was a, you know, had all those kind of racial undertones or overtones, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I was a good rugby league player. Uh, I was pushed towards football um, as well by my parents, you know, from a, a Spanish family. My dad my uncle played here for the, the Spanish club in Canberra. And, you know, we'd play against the, the he played against the Croatians, the, the Macedonian team, the, the Greeks, the Italians, and it was a, a wonderful football vibe, a wonderful football community that we have lost, uh, that went missing for a while. Um, and then I went to Canberra, Canberra City. It was the old NSL club. I was there for a year. And then uh, Jimmy Shoulder and Ron Smith took me to the AIS. Um, but in between that, um, at a football match, I'd just come off and uh, it was the one that really changed my mind and set me towards football. A gentleman by the name of Johnny Warren came up to me and he said, uh, he said, you could be a great socceroo one day, son. Um, I, I think I think that's got to be your choice. And um, jo- Johnny um, was a good friend of mine and um, he impacted my life positively. Wow, that's incredible. My gosh. Yeah. And then to hear, though, I mean, I know a little bit about your football story and, of course, we'll, we'll get to the book that you're writing, which is called Writing Shotgun, that you're planning on releasing potentially next year. Um, I think there's a lot of hype and a lot of buzz around that, Andy, because of the, the, the wildly colourful life that you have led in football. But the, the, the whole notion that, you know, football wasn't your chosen passion in the very beginning, uh, that's really quite fascinating. It is because... Uh, I was on a podcast the other day with the New South Wales Institute of Sport Coaches and, and they were asking me, and people still now ask me around the place, so what academy did you go to, like, whether it's private or you, know, you look around the Australian uh, landscape now, and there's there's a million private academies um, and, and then you've got all the academies and you know, the, uh, the Institute of Sports, uh, all these things uh, everywhere. And, um, you know, I, I kind of answer with uh, I played – uh, soccer, football, twice. Uh, you know, I'd do two training sessions a week with Bell Connon South, with Bell South. Um, I'd play rugby league for the school on a Wednesday. I'd play football, soccer on a weekend, and cricket and ride BMX bikes and and, and um, every sport you could imagine. I did, um, and it wasn't six, seven, eight sessions a week of football, um, but from rugby league and from AFL and things like that, I took. 
uh, you know, the, the thing people sometimes forget, you know, to play top level sport, you, you need a brain that's able to understand spatial awareness, understand angles, understand a lot of things. And, and sometimes, you know, from these other sports, we can, we can find, um, you know, you, you find yourself, you know, how to, how to look at things. You look at Billy Slater playing rugby league. You know, it's no different than Ned Zellich being a sweeper. He can see everything in front of him. <laughs> you know, he covers covers things, wins the ball, run out, runs out from the back. Same thing. Brackenbell, Zellich, whatever you want to, that's the same thing. Mm. A but, lot of comments but, coming through. I'm sorry to interrupt, Andy. A lot of comments coming through. Vince Pell, where has this guy been before? Wow. Ivan Stragen, another one of our top fans I mentioned earlier. These are the stories that resonate with the people in the community. Great interview. So many people just delighted uh, to have you joining us. Erin uh, Colettes is also saying this is a great interview. So many people, like I said, just um, really enjoying listening to what you're saying there, Andy. Um, another point that I want to pick up on too um, when we talk about your your time at the Australian Institute of Sport is working with the likes of the great uh, Ron Smith, who we all affectionately know as Smudger. The impact that he's had on Australian football is huge. I mean, I've interviewed him myself. I've sat down with him and spoken about his journey and and why he was so blessed to have so many talented footballers coming through under his guidance. But also he credited a lot of the the guys that were deployed across the country who were identifying the talent first and then sending them over and raising the flag and, and, and saying to Ron, you need to have a look at these kids. But He's been so influential in Australian football. Why is he a close personal friend of yours and why is he such a, a valuable commodity and person in Australian football? Well, well, Ron, Ron uh, was the assistant coach when I joined the AS. Um, the head coach was Jimmy Shoulder, um, an old English pro that was in charge of the, the Socceroos at one stage. And Jimmy, um, Jimmy had played for Sunderland in, in England. He played cricket for Darlington. Um, kind of everything that that I liked in sport. Um, Ron was his assistant. And between both of them, the messages that that Jim would give as an older pro that you would need to to learn and understand if you wanted to play top professional football, he was fantastic at, at giving that information across. Ron Smith, he's just, from a football professor to a... Um, to a geek, whatever you want to call it, the guy's knowledge of football and the ability to tell you in simple words once or twice what is required in a particular football situation was just how simple he would make it. You know, it's about the body positioning. When you receive the ball, you need to know where it's going next, but you also need to know that first touch allows you then to deliver that to where it's going. If not, you come the other way, depending on pressure. Um, Really simple uh, information that all of us, you know, from you you look at all the golden generation, um, all had and were lucky to have fantastic information like that, whereas you you see now in a lot of the academies, you know, the setups are based a lot on passing, 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 bounce, bounce. B- the only bouncer I knew was a bouncer at, at the private bin. You know, <laughs> you know, uh, now, now, now you've got, you know, give it to, you know, bounce, bounce it, bounce it. That's all I hear, bounce, bounce, bounce. Um, it, it's, it, it's changed and we didn't do that. We, we were able to play to bounce if we wanted to bounce. Uh, We would go long if we wanted to go long. Um, But we understood, everybody understood their job. 
If I'm a centre half, my job is to stop the nine. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. care how you do it. Stop the nine. Mm-hmm. And, and those messages aren't given to kids now. It's all about, you know, the splitting at the back, open up, pass, pass, pass. Leave that to Barcelona. When you're technically mm-hmm. as good, physically as good as a Barcelona player, then start doing that. Okay, there's no, there's no problem practicing it, but you know you've got to bring every other. I think we've 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 focused and concentrated on on one part of say a Barcelona passing kind of team um, and education, um, but we've forgotten about a lot of other stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But but Ron, back to Ron, just just uh, a wealth you know of information. Um, he I'm very grateful to him. He. Um, made me his chief scout um, for the uh, the World Cup, uh, you know, qualification rounds in South America, and he and I put together a, a dossier, a blueprint, if you want to call it, and we gave it to Gus. And, uh, the boys turned up at ANZ. They they read they read everything. Ron and I had done the homework, and uh, we qualified for a World Cup. So um, that was an amazing adventure too. But Ron. Uh, and above the football, above the football, if you ask from your brother to, to Mark Viduka, to Lucas Neal, to, to myself, to Frank Freens, as everybody, um, a good man, a good man, a good soul um, that, you know, far and above all his football knowledge that he would impart on us, um, he's a sort of guy that, you know, you'd run through brick walls for, over mountains for, and that's what you need uh, of a coach, uh, of a head coach, of a general, you know, to be able to go to war with them and and, and have a belief in, in what they're telling you. And, you know, it's no secret. For some reason, we all at a particular age left the AIS and were able to, within a year or two, um, some even earlier, like here you would go straight into NSL. You know, but to go, for me, for example, at, at 19, to go and play, you know, in Spain, on loan from Gijon, you know, against Valencia, La Coruña, Bilbao, you know, in a first 11 regular, it does, it, it's unheard of. It doesn't happen now. And, and I'm not saying it in an egotistical way, but it's, I'm saying it because it concerns me that we can't produce that anymore. And that's the real worry. Um, some questions coming through uh, before we get over to you, Stolich, to elaborate on all of these. Um, Tony Raffle, yeah, I've got a question for Lucy. Why did you block me on Twitter? I don't know, Tony. I've got no idea who you are, but you're probably carrying on like a dickhead. That's why you got blocked. <laughs> um, elsewhere, some other questions uh, from Bradley Bird. This one's a good one, and it would be good for you to answer this one. As a guy that came through the AIS, Andy, how much of a blow is it not having the football program anymore? Okay. Um it's a major blow, but the problem with the football program in the last few years, the age groups had changed. So you were still dealing with, um, you know, I think it was like 15, 16, 17-year-olds max. Uh, so you got a guy that spends a couple of years at the AOS and he's still 16, um, and then he goes to an A-League club if an A-League club takes him. Um, so then he goes into their NYL setup, um, whereas uh, the greatest production line of Socceroos, um, we kind of came out of there at 18, 18 max. So we're there 16, 18, 18 and a half. And, for example, 
on my 18th birthday that year, we, as the AOS, went and played a, a tournament in Germany. And we ended up in the final at Borussia Dortmund Stadium against Real Madrid. Uh, their coach was a gentleman who's a good friend of mine now, Vicente Del Bosque, who became Spanish national team manager. And they had five young boys that became Spanish internationals. And uh, at 18, we were playing against that. And that's at that particular time that I had a decent game against them. We didn't win. But I knew then I can play against this lot um, at 18. And it gives you a confidence uh, that I'm as good as their 18, 19-year-olds. Now I can go to Spain and, and you know incorporate myself into a, a first division club, a second division club. Whereas the AIS, yes, it needs to be in place. You know, the best... Uh, 16, 17, 18 players need to be, particularly if it's Canberra, here in Canberra. But the age is very important. You, if you leave at 18, 19, you're almost prepared and ready to go into first team football. If you leave here at 16, 16 and a half, and then you go into A-League academies or NPL academies, you may be lost to the system. The other important factor is when you're here at the AOS, who do you play against? Because it's very important between those ages of 16 to 18, who you play against. Uh, you know, winning 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 nil every week is not productive. It's not a good, healthy environment to produce good footballers. Um, uh, and, you know, the example is you can go to any European company. I'll give a country, I'll give you Spain for an example. If you play for Real Madrid under 16, 17s, every week you're playing against Atletico Madrid, Barcelona. Sevilla, Malaga. So every week is a competitive, tough match. 40 games a season, 38 games a season. That's how you produce footballers. And guess what? The message is every year, one or two of you, the best ones will go up. The rest to the scrapyard. And that's how harsh it is. But you can't say that now. You send an email to a parent now. Uh, if your son doesn't get through this, he's going to the scrapyard. Oh, you're gone. You can't say that, Andy. You know, uh, I get kids, you know, wanting to be socceroos and they turn five up, five minutes late for a training session. Mate, I don't want to know. See you later. Oh, my mum had to do – I'm not training your mum. Mm. Correct? Mm -hmm. You know, it's yeah, – football's football. You know, it's – we. you know, people try and reinvent it, but it's pretty basic, you know. Uh, Roy Keane, I spoke to all these people and, and they do, at Real Madrid, all the players said to me, Andy do the simple things well that's what we've got to do, simple mm -hmm. things well, you know, I see kids try and beckon passes when they can't pass two yards mm -hmm. but they're not told that, listen son when you get that right, then you can try that outside of the foot 30 yard ball mm -hmm. Tom Catoni writing in, love this, and I couldn't agree more. Um, he's basically said, love this real mentality. Wendy GH, true. Um, over to you, Stolich, to ask some questions, but we're getting a lot of comments coming through here in response to your comments, Andy. I think everyone's appreciating the fact that you're just speaking honestly about it, and I don't think we're ruthless enough in Australian football, right? Stolich, take it away. Yeah, I think it's some really interesting comments. We appreciate everyone's comments and also the likes and all the uh, reactions. That always helps. And spreading the word. So spread the word to anyone who isn't watching this show because I think we get really interesting characters like Andy. But, Andy, what I wanted to ask is can you tell us about kind of that transition that you made from going from the AAS to La Liga, being the first Aussie to play in La Liga with Gijon and Albacete there? And then from that, you know, what was your life kind of like on and off the pitch? Because I guess – 
you know, football in Spain in the 80s, while it was a very high level, it's quite different to what it is today, especially the lifestyle and, and maybe how hard it was off the field as well. Look, I, I think uh, the transition was um, whilst I knew the language and I had family in Gijon. I'll tell you how it kind of happened. Uh, when I played against Real Madrid in Dortmund, um, I spoke to Del Bosque afterwards. You know, there was no agents those days and I spoke to him in Spanish and I said, look, my parents are Spanish. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a child of, of, of migrants. And um, he said, look, I, I like how you played today and invited me to Real Madrid. And in that process, there was someone working at the Australian, um, uh, here at the Spanish Embassy in Canberra. And, and um, it kind of worked out that I ended up signing for Gijon. Um, I had family there and I spoke Spanish Um and I suppose the transition was uh, was easy because I spoke Spanish, and I came from a, a background that was that was Spanish. But you know, it was still um, it was still really really difficult. You know, there were at a young age uh, there was no WhatsApp, there was no messenger, there's no video things like there are now. Um, you know, my communication with mum and dad, uh, you know, was via letters. You know, those old airmail letters and, and the occasional, you know, reverse charge collect call where you couldn't even see anybody. So for a year, um, you know, I didn't see mum and dad. Yeah, it was a year later um, after leaving the AIS and, and a couple of letters that they came and watched me play against Valencia at a, at a packed Mestalla, which was a real proud moment um, for them. But it was difficult, you know, and people don't see that side of when you go over as a youngster. You know, I signed for Gijon. They had five, six Spanish internationals at the time. There was no chance of getting in that team. Um, so then you wait around until you get a, a, a loan, which is fantastic. You know, you go out on loan and it's part of the, the development process. And then, you know, you play. Um, I've played against Bilbao, Barcelona, all, all the great teams, you know, Sevilla, Valencia. Uh, just uh, an amazing experience. Um but different times, different times. Uh, but again, Spanish football um, is is tough. It's tougher than people think. Um, and uh, how would I put it, judgmental? I, I I played more on the card that I was Spanish than uh, Australian. Uh, they still don't have a lot of respect for Australian footballers. Um, although there's you know there's four of us that have, have played there um, in the history of our, of our country, four Socceroos have played there, um, but it wasn't easy. So you know I started playing the Spanish card, and, and they work you out straight away. Um, you know for me, you know the first couple of days you rarely touch the ball. You know they look at you, they turn away, and um, you're a threat to them. Um, but you've got to win them over some in some capacity. Um, for me, the greatest, more so than any other country. And I would say Brazil and Argentina are similar. Um, you know, your first training session with a Spanish club, that first touch you have, if the other players don't rate it, you're gone. You, know, you, you need to be able to play. You need to be able to be technically competent, intelligent, and you need to be a great athlete. And, and that's what people these days don't see about Barcelona, Real Madrid, the great teams. Those players, every single one of those players, are very, very special athletes as well. Besides, they have everything else, and then their athletic athletic ability. If you did physiological testing with all of them, they're up there with the greatest Olympic athletes in whatever you want. A question coming from uh, Alex Sivkarovsky. Good afternoon to you, Alex. Thanks so much for your company, mate, and your question for Andy. Hardest opponent during your time in Spain? He wants to know. My hardest opponent during my time in Spain 
was at Sporting Gijón training, and it was against a guy called Enrique Castrochini. And the stadium at Gijón is now named after him. And Kini was five times Pichichi, which is five times top goal scorer in the Spanish La Liga, three of them with Barcelona. He was once kidnapped by ETA, the terrorist group. And, um, you know, to win, to win the Pichichi five times uh, is a very, very special thing. I think it's only been beaten by Messi and Ronaldo. Mm-hmm. Um, very special football, you know, and, and, and training games against him were, were just... Uh, just amazing. I learned so much. Uh, so I would say him. You know that that was just the training. Uh, but uh, there's other uh, other many great footballers. I had a great battle once with Xavi Alonso's father, Pichi Alonso, who um, had left Barcelona and he was playing for Espanyol, um, and he he played for Spain in the 1982 World Cup in Spain. Um, great battle with him. You know, so, um, you know, I could go through a lot of players that, that, you know, if you looked at your history books, you'd go, wow, you played against him? Yeah. So, um, you know. Who, and, who are you most proud to have played against? Oh, look. Who will you tell of the grandkids? Uh, <laughs> Batistuta, Cantona, Zola, Viali, Marcuse, Desai. Um, <laughs> goes on and on. Yeah. Um, you know, Marcel Desailly, uh, we played against him at Chelsea and, and just a fantastic player, uh, a rock, uh, a fantastic athlete. Um, the greatest compliment I've received in football, believe it or not, um, after we played Chelsea and we lost 2-1 at home, um, Marcel and Gus Poyet and uh, who was it? Leboeuf came up to me and they said, you should have been with us today. Wow. Uh, so I'll take that one. Yeah, you will take that one. And, and, and all, you know, um, you know, uh, all done on, you know, I, I had a lot of knee injuries, you know, my, my left knee, uh, you know, at birth, you know, told I probably wouldn't play sport or, or run ever. So, um, you know, it was, a, it's been a, uh, it's been a career, um, you know, I could sit here and whinge and complain. I'm very proud and, and you know, I wish I'd played more games for the Socceroos. I wish I'd played more games all around the world. Um, but you look back and you go, you know, you should be grateful if you have one Socceroo cap. Um, and injuries are part of the game and, and they robbed me of, of, of many games and, and, and many other opportunities. But it's life, you know, and um, so you kind of make, make what you do of it. You know, I once had um, uh, a great chat and, and an evening meal with Sir Bobby Charlton down at Watson's Bay. And um, he said, son, um, football's a great game. You, you achieve a lot while you play. And, and, and we always think we could achieve more. Um, but if you play it smart, listen to these words, get yourself right. And between 55 and 75, you'll achieve a lot as well. I mean, your injuries, though, they can't be downplayed because, I mean, as a child, I was reading in the uh, the, the, the notes of your book that is coming out. Um, for those of you just joining us, welcome along to the World Game Live. It's fantastic to have your company. We are joined by former Socceroo Andy Bernal here today, so make sure you get your questions in and we'll do our very best to get to them as the show goes on. But um, in the synopsis of your book, you spoke about how as a child you had to wear a brace on your knee while you slept and you carried this pain with you throughout your entire playing career um, and had multiple surgeries 
injuries, holes drilled into cartilage and things to try and get the knee back in and, and restored into a, into some kind of condition that would be suitable for playing football. But, I mean, the anguish of having to, to deal with that your, your entire career, Andy, that wouldn't have been easy. No, and I think, you know, it's a scenario where um, you kind of, you kind of create a, a mindset or a, a brain kind of function that anaesthetizes pain all the time and the desire to, to want to play in Spain, the desire to want to play in England um, overrides, you know, the, that pain that you have, um, you know, uh, from injury, you know, and again, uh, we all, we all get injured. Oh, mine was from birth and, um, you know, a degenerative problem and uh, with one of the knees and it just, um, I wasn't ever going to let it stop me. But I would say that over years and, and when you get a little bit older, you kind of, um, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of things that happen over a career uh, come back later on in life and you think, why did I do that and why was my mind thinking this and why am I sad? Why am I happy? Why am I? Um, and I think over a whole journey and, and, and the book will really, really, you know, show a lot of things that, that impact us throughout you know our journey and, and how we deal with it how we cope with it it's a fantastic thing about the book as well you know I deal on you know the mental health issues in football which are really important you know the after football some people seem to have a good others for whatever reason even though people think they might be strong might be great characters of the game you know we have our weaknesses we fail um why you know, um, the PFA uh, and the FFA and uh, not just them, but, but but a lot of, you know, associations and, and federations and, and clubs, um, you know, when you play for them, fantastic. You know, when you don't or you run into a bit of trouble, you don't hear from them. Mm-hmm. You know, I played my heart out for the country. When you run into a bit of trouble, not one person says, are you okay? Mm-hmm. You know, That's it's, uh, very that's a scary fact, Andy. Um, and that's something that you talk about at, at great lengths throughout your book as well, about the depression and issues that you suffered and dealt with um, going through all of these motions uh, across what is said before a very colourful and challenging career at the best of times as well but Stolich I want us to switch gears and talk about Andy's time in the UK with Nottingham Forest of course um, Ipswich Town as well and Reading where you made a host of appearances but um, Stolich over to you on that. Yeah Andy just tell us kind of what was what was how did that change come about you know obviously Forest and Ipswich big teams in England um, and what was the transition like from you know Spain and Spanish football and, and you kind of being of that culture going to England? Well, the, the only reason I left Spain was, um, you know, I'd played 60 games um, with, with, with Albacete and, and Jerez. Um, and I was going back to Gijon for a new three-year deal. And at the time, I had a Spanish passport. You know, there was none of this European Union business. And you were only allowed two foreigners per club. Um, the Spanish Federation considered me an Australian, having played for Australia before. Um, the Spanish government considered me Spanish uh, for their military. Um, so I got called up for military service, um, but they wouldn't let me play as a Spaniard. So, um, you know, just on a, you know, just on, on that point of view um, and a principal scenario, um, I'm not, you know, you want me to go to war for you? 
but you won't let me play as a Spaniard. So, so I was out of there. Um, and that that is 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 another chapter in the book where the military police are chasing me and whatever. And I end up in in, in Nottingham. My friend's doing university there, and um, uh, he says the military what are you police were chasing you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, like to the airport, or uh, what happened? If, if I had been caught at the airport. I would have done two years in a military prison. Wow. How did you get out of Spain? You've got to read Chapter 10. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. We'll read it. We'll read it. So so we ended up up in in Nottingham. Uh, My friend's doing university there. And, yeah, Nottingham Forest were a big side, you know, Cluffy, arguably the greatest British manager ever. Mm -hmm. And, um my mate goes, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to go and see Cluffy. And he goes, are you mad? I go, <laughs> no. So, again, it's another one I don't want to give too much away, but um, the meeting with him in the office was uh, unforgettable. For me, it was, um, rather than scary, it was so inspiring, you know, what he said to me, what we talked about, Um Oh, the only thing I'll give you is he called in Archie Gemmel, his assistant, and he said he starts training with us tomorrow, put him in between Des Walker and Neil Webb, England internationals. Wow. And then then um, I signed for Nottingham Forest, and, and it was hard to get into their first team. The, the, the guys ahead of me in my positions, uh, Webby, you know, went off to play for Man United. Walker, England International, went to play for Sampdoria, so it was hard to get in in front of them. Um, but Cluffy liked me, and uh, he made a phone call, and uh, on his recommendation, uh, I was signed by Twitch Town. And mm-hmm. when I was um, making leaps and bounds and thinking I'm going to be in England for the next 10 years, uh, I was again, uh, the bureaucratic red tape got me, and uh, I was deported. Mm-hmm. For playing on a wow. visa that I shouldn't have, but it was a, the only visa that I could get in. I didn't have enough A caps at the time. Um, and years ago, when we were kids in Australia, young kids in Australia would think of you'd think of changing names, of how to get a British passport, of how to mm-hmm. um, you know things that, that the youngsters now wouldn't even like. I don't know, contemplate. I think, what do you mean going to a graveyard and looking at a kid that died before the age of? Uh, one and, and stealing their birth certificate, and that's how you get a British passport. You know, wow! To, 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 to play in England um, under a wow. different name, um, and that was just, you know, I'd grown up in 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 Page and Belconnen, and you know, I had a Leeds poster, you know, on on my wall, and then you know, the thought of playing at Elland Road was like, you know, wow, that's the, you know, and, and then I played at Elland Road, you know, marking mm-hmm. Hasselbank. You know, all, all those boys, uh, just um, amazing. You know, the, the the journey, look, I could sit here and talk all day and all tomorrow about every single little incident, you know, at Ipswich, at this and that. But, you know, I, think we Ipswich, listen. I mean, I mean, Ipswich was a, a fantastic one too. You know, when you go to new clubs, you know, you got to kind of work yourself into the fabric of being liked by people. Um, how do you do it? You know, Messi can do it through, you know, unbelievable skill. Yeah. People like Andy, uh, you know, I might have to nail someone. Yeah, so, 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 so if you nail someone, you know, at Ipswich, Johnny Walk comes up and he goes, hey, you're my new roommate. 
and then you get talking and, and John Walker came, you know, he, 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 play, he was an actor that played a role in Escape to Victory, a Liverpool legend. He came back to Ipswich. Um, you know, he was mates with Craig Johnston. He goes, you're my new roommate. Um, and just when I, you know, on the back of it, being offered a new two, three year deal at Ipswich, got to come back here. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if things happen for a reason, but I, I certainly believe, you know, uh, the red tape and the bureaucratic business of, of, of visas and stuff in, in Europe, you know, uh, on, on several occasions cost me maybe 10 or 12 years in, in Spain and England, um, you know. I've Ipswich town players now say, thank God you left. i got a testimonial. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you have an agent at the time, like helping you? Because this sounds like you know all this chaos no, of military no, and clubs no, and visas. They, no agent they, at the time. They weren't really. There might have been the initial stages of, of management and agency, but hmm. no. Um, you know, young lads now, you know, um, that I work for, you know, I'll, I'll make the phone calls, I'll send the emails, and um, hmm. yeah. I sent a letter to Terry Venables once, you know, I was 18, 17 at the AIS and Jimmy Shoulder got me his, you know, I sent him a letter. I wrote a letter and said, could I please trial? I don't know. And, wow. you know, and, and I got one back. He said, yeah, if you're ever in England, you tell me. Wow. So just, just things like that. And then, and I think that was part of, you know, us, you know, those older generations in a way, look, it's not even been disrespectful to, to the newer kids, but we just had to do almost more for ourselves. Mm. Um, that was just society, you know, pick up a phone, talk, um, mm. write a letter. Uh, and that, I think, built um, a little bit of a sturdier character, I think. Mm. Mm. Um, some more questions and comments coming in. Um, this one from the great Pablo Cordozo, who you'll know. Great to see you healthy again, Birchie. Looking forward to reading the book and hopefully see you uh, at least line up. Oops, sorry, that's vanished again. Uh, see at least one line with my name in it. Of course, you would know Pablo as well. Um, great to have him tuning in and, and to get your comment. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, a lot of people are writing in with some more comments. Another one coming in from Michael Ong. What about your time in Reading, Andy? Well, Reading was um, – I was playing for Sydney Olympic and um, really no intention of, of, of heading back to the UK. I wouldn't say that. I, I wanted to head back to Europe. Um, but at 26, 27, it starts becoming unrealistic. Um, and just by chance, uh, uh, Mick Hickman, who had become assistant to Mark McGee at, at Reading, uh, he was my old coach at Sydney Olympic when we won the NSL title. Um, he said, uh, we've just gone up into the, the championship, um, a new side. Uh, would you like to come and play for us? Uh, and it was easy as that. Um, I was working at Wallara Council at the same time as a, as a ranger. And so uh, it was It was a pretty um, – the ranger job was a beauty. Oh, it was like it was, it, was, it was like Baywatch, you know. Yeah, they touch footy on, on Wednesdays and just patrol Camp Cove and Watson's Bay. Brilliant. <laughs> Have I got some stories about those days? Tell them. Come I on, tell I can't. Then no one will buy the book. One, one. <laughs> Listen, we got enough stories already to sell the book. Tell us one story from being a, a ranger. One story. Come on. Okay. So I joined Wallara Council because I'm playing for Sydney Olympic and 
you know, you, you're getting your Olympic money, um, which was okay, but not like anything these days. So you had to supplement your income. So I applied for a job as a ranger for Willara Council on the condition that the first three months you had to be acting dog catcher. <laughs> okay? this I'm going to tell you this story. So I'm acting dog catcher for three months at Willara Council. I'm a socceroo at the time. Oh, my God. Okay? I'm in, I'm in the dog catching van around Watson's Bay, Dover Heights, and a call comes in. Dogs off leads at Watson's Bay Park. I think it's called Robertson Park. So Andy, Andy goes down, dog van, picture of a dog on the side. Um, right. I get to the park and there's like, it's like 101 Dalmatians. Dogs everywhere. Dogs everywhere. I've never caught a dog in my life. Um, I lied about understanding about dogs in the interview. Um, the guy that gave me the job was a football fan, so I think he just gave it to me. Um, so I've gone down there and as soon as the dog van arrives, Dogs and owners scarper everywhere. They're gone, except two big Great Danes. A guy comes over from Doyle's restaurant and he goes, hello, mate. You're the new dog catcher. I go, oh, kind of, yeah, um, kind of just temporary. Um, uh, what else do you, uh, and I, you know, play for Olympic and uh, Socceroos and this and that. And he goes, great. He goes, I'll tell you how it's going to work. Um, I own Doyle's. Um, these are my dogs. Do your parents come up to Sydney and watch you play every now and then? I go, yeah, every second week. We guess. When they come up, you're going to bring them here. See that table on the sand there? That's the best table in the house. That's yours and for your parents every time they come to Sydney. Um, and my dogs <laughs> always run free at this park because it's their park and they love it. And I go, you got a deal, son. <laughs> so that was that was my I, I've I've now been rated the worst dog catcher in Willara Council history. <laughs> yeah, because you're making deals with everyone, but I don't yes, blame so, you. Oh, but that, that's yes. a good agent. That's a good agent right there, guess, using his leverage. What? So can you believe that nine months later, nine, ten months later, from catching uh, being a dog catcher, I'm playing at Wembley Stadium. God, that's just crazy. I'm playing and- part-time football in, camp, in in Sydney for Sydney Olympic. I'm dog catching. I'm a ranger as well. And nine, ten months later, I'm running out at Wembley Stadium. Wow. Wow. And it doesn't get more Australian football than that, does it? Um, especially when it comes to your time in the NSL and with Sydney Olympic. Talk us through what those days were like. I mean, I'm certainly very nostalgic about the, the National Soccer League era because of, uh, you know, what it did for so many of us here, particularly being children of migrants and understanding what it meant to our families to have clubs like these that we could support and felt like we belonged in the community. But what was it like for you? Uh, I think I think it's what's missing now. I think. You know, to, to play, uh, I was fortunate to play in, in two grand finals, uh, Sydney Olympic v Marconi um, at Parramatta Stadium, full houses, you know, with, with you know, a, a passionate, vibrant Greek community, community versus the Italian community, you know, the loyalty, the passion. Uh, it was just, you know, the colours, everything that is missing now. Um, and... We, we played for, for the badge, for the people. We knew what it meant to them, the winning, the losing, um, all things that have gone now. Um, uh, 
you know, players signed for clubs and they were there for two, three years. Um, you know, we had to get other jobs. Um, but just, to, but we all at the same time wanted to become Socceroos. We did extra, extra training on our own. Uh, we had old <laughs> Europeans managing us, parts of, you know, part of, of boardrooms. Um, you know, that would show us the ways of, of, of you know, old European football. Um, you know, I, I treasured my time, you know, five years at Sydney Olympic, you know, under George Pashalas, people like Harry Michaels, um, just characters. You know, if you've never been for a party on Harry's boat, you ain't lived. <laughs> That's a chapter in the book, and I'm not going to tell you that one now. <laughs> okay, when the book comes out afterwards, you have to come on the show again and tell us okay, some of these stories. One hundred percent. So, look, the NSL, Lucy, you're right. It was, um, I think the the world uh, is changing, and, and I think some some decisions that that were made at the FFA years ago with you know, the, the flags and the change of, of, of names of teams and things like that has impacted a lot. But, you know, I wish it would come back. You know, it's um, just because, you know, 30,000 Greeks go to a stadium and, and, and chant for South Melbourne or, or, or Sydney Olympic or Heidelberg doesn't mean they're not Australian. Mm. You know, we're very much Australian. We're just passionate of, of our background, of those colours. Um, Croatians the same. Yeah, it's like... It's part of the fabric of society, and 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 now you look at even within A League clubs now, um, you know the 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 salary cap to this. They you, you get a kid that's playing for Central Coast Mariners one week, four months later he's playing for Wellington Phoenix, then he's playing for he's on the bench for Adelaide, and like so so fans can't even become kind of tied to a, a favourite player. They can't mm-hmm. things like that are missing. Um, where is, you know, the Adelaide City that I played against when I was at Sydney Olympic? Five, six, seven Socceroos played in that Adelaide City side. So if, if you're a person from Adelaide, you know, our boys are playing today. You know, they're our boys. They're from Adelaide. You know, if I change some rules in, 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 in a new A-League setup, five, six boys have to be from the hometown. So that people in Canberra, for example, when we get an A-League side, you know, there's five, six, seven boys from here. Mm-hmm. And we're mm-hmm. going to go watch them, and they're our boys. You know, they're not some kid from Wellington that you know can't fit in the salary cap, and he comes here and he's on the bench for Canberra. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll put a sixteen-year-old kid from Canberra, from Canberra, Croatia, or, or Canberra Olympic on. There you go, son. Here's your opportunity. Mm-hmm. And guess what? All their community will back the club as well. Mm-hmm. Some great observations. What do you think of the A-League? Do you watch it at all, Andy? Do you have much of an interest in it and seeing that the players come through? No, I don't watch much. I just, I was pretty disappointed, you know, over the past five, ten years of, of going around here in Canberra and, and, and you know, uh, watching, you know, people in, in, in positions of, of authority almost talk down to you, um, you know, not want to listen to, um, you know, things that you might have to say about the game. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, if you're from Belgium, if you're from Holland, I don't care where you're at, if you're from Germany, you know, if you're coaching in Australia, in most cases, it's because you're not good enough to coach in your own country. So don't come here and tell someone that's played in Spain and for the Socceroos and against Batistuta, 
and and is connected with Ronaldo Valderrama and everybody, and who sits down for lunch with Valdano for hours, how to work an academy at the AIS. Mm-hmm. You know, don't dismiss what he has to say. Yeah. Know? Um, just that, so yeah, that that's then trans trans kind of crest or transcended in, into to watching the A League. It's okay. Um, it's what we have. Um, it can be a lot better. Um, uh, and I've got a whole list of things that that would make it better, from the passion from the fans uh, to the players to more youngsters getting uh, an opportunity. Um, you know, transfer fees. Throw in three or four young lads. 17, 18, 19, throw them to the wolves. Yeah, sink or swim. But if they swim, if they swim, guess what? That club might, in a year or two, have a kid that goes to Dortmund for a million dollars mm-hmm. and then a sell-on sale to Chelsea for $15 million to the club here in Canberra or Sydney or wherever. That's how we got to work it. You know, and don't be afraid to throw in good kids. The, the thing in Europe is these teams – We'll throw in a 16, 17, 18-year-old because he's amongst seven, eight fantastic players. I kind of get it here. They might be a little bit more reluctant to do it because the quality around that young kid isn't as good. But you know what? If I was an A-League manager and I'd like to be one day, I'd throw the kids in. Mm, And I'd empower them. I would empower them to not fear everybody. If we were playing Sydney, if we were playing any of them, in the tunnel, I'd be having a go at the opposition and so would my boys. <laughs> in the tunnel. <laughs> Bringing that tribalism back to football, and I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier. It's something we're certainly missing. Before I bounce over to Stolich um, to move on to the next subject, uh, a quick one from uh, Peter Papadakis, and this one's important to me too. I'd love to know it, uh, also being a, a born and bred Canberra girl. Opinions on an A-League team in Canberra at all, Andy? Well, it's a national disgrace that there isn't one. You know, How can we not? How can the, the national capital... Um, you know, with a fine rugby league team, the Raiders, we've got the Brumbies, and we don't have an A-league team. It's just, it's absurd, you know. And when people, you know, when people tell me about, you know, where, where the players will come from, in my book I named the greatest ever 11 players out of Canberra, okay? Mm-hmm. I won't even include myself, but I'll just give you three names. Simonich, <laughs> Zelich, Rogic, okay? That's just three. Okay, I'll leave myself. And, and there's a lot more in there. You, you've got, I've got an all-time 11 from Canberra with about 460 caps, international caps. That's so, crazy. So, so we have talent here, okay? Mm. But the kids here in Canberra need a goal. You can have all these academies, but if there's nothing like, um, you know, you, you need a club to be playing on the weekend against Sydney FC. Like the Raiders play against all their, you know, rugby league rivals. If I was a kid in Canberra, if I was a, if I was the parent or an uncle of a young kid in Canberra now, he'd play rugby league, play for the Raiders, because that's where it's at. That's where the city's at. That's where the passion's at. That's where the professionalism is at. Yeah. So why can't we have that? Yeah. We can't even secure a Matildas game for goodness sake in a World Cup, like. Where's where are the minds here? Where's the mindset? Um, you know, I would immediately link a Canberra A-League team. You don't have to be an official link, but straight away, 
I'd take the coaching team to Real Madrid for a month. I'd go, I'd ring up Mr. Betters and go, we're here for a month. We want to understand your success. How has it been achieved over 100 years because you're the team of the century? What's the culture, the philosophy, you know, from under sixes, sevens to the first team? Can I go in the dressing room and listen to a team talk? Yes, you can, Andy. You're one of us. Mm. And then you bring that back. You know, and you tie yourself to excellence. Set the bar high. Tie yourself to excellence. This is what they do. This is what they do. Why are we doing that when they've never won a World Cup? Why are we bringing information from people that have never won anything? Why don't we look at Brazil? Why don't we look at Argentina? Why don't we look at Spain? Capish? Capish is right. Daniel Severino via Facebook. Good afternoon to you, Daniel. Always enjoyed an away trip to Canberra. Birch, you're right. National disgrace. Stolich, over to you. Yeah, I wanted to ask you. We got uh, we put a thing out on Twitter saying sending your questions. I got one from uh, Tim Giros. He said, "Please remind Birch of his famous quote after the 1990 NSL Grand Final: If Marconi are the Rolls Royces of Australian football, Olympic are the Ferraris without a garage." Do you remember that time? <laughs> I, I, I do remember that one, and it was um, on the back of uh, Marconi at the time. Were a fantastic club. Um, it, it was the uh, it was the Las Vegas of Sydney. You know, they were a fantastic club. They built a beautiful social club. Uh, they were the kings, you know, and, and they were kind of nicknamed the, the Rolls Royce of Australian football. And, um, you know, we we at Sydney Olympic, we trained at, at Long Bay, near Long Bay Jail at, at Malabar down there. So if you if your ball went over the, uh, the goalpost in shooting practice, it would end up in, in a prison cell. And, uh, yeah, it was just the, the things that we went through. So we had no... No real training pitch. We had no social club. We, we had a team. We had a live, you know, 14 people that turned up the training with Tomo and Mick Hickman. And uh, somehow we became national champions. So I just thought, yeah, we'll give it to them and we're the Ferrari, but, but we don't have a garage. But now that you bring that up, I'd like to just give a thank you to Remo Nogarotto, um, my friend Remo. Um, when you put your ad up yesterday, guys, that, that I'd be on the show, he... Um, he said some nice words about me and um, I just want him to know that I appreciate his support. Um, uh, my book's going to clarify a lot of things that have happened over my career and one day I'd love to be involved in, a, in some capacity as a mentor or, or coaching or something with uh, with the new generation of, of young stars that come through um, with our national teams. And, and I really do think that... that uh, you know, in a good state of mind, I have a lot to offer. Yeah, I'll just read out what uh, Remos said. He said, was going to say, this was in response to, um, uh, we said we're going to have you on the show today. Because was going to say hard as nails, but that would be doing Birch a disservice. He was much, much harder than that. A great <laughs> character too. He's, um, you know what, I nearly signed for, for Marconi. Uh, it was before all the freeways were, were built out there and it took about an hour and a half to train to get to training in the afternoons. But, you know, it, it it was one of those scenarios that after Olympic, I was there for three, four years. And, and I think a year before I went back to, to England and Reading, um, I went out and I met Remo and, and um, you know, he didn't have to sell me the club. It was the best club in the country. Um, but I lived down at Bronte Beach and, you know, I kind of, I was liking the eastern suburbs and I didn't fancy going out to Marconi four nights a week. So, you know, on the, on the old <laughs> Parramatta Road. 
So um, that's the only reason I never signed because they were at the time the best club in the country. Mm. I want to move on to the next point um, and, and right before we get to your role as David Beckham's minder because I think that's something that you're so well known for, um, you transitioned into a role as an agent um, and you've met some shady characters um, and I'm sure you've got some some dodgy stories that you'd be able to tell us but that you will be reserving for the book. So I'll tell you what, Andy, hurry the hell up and get this book out, will you? Okay. We're dying to read it. Um, but your time as an agent, um, how that all came about and why that was the right transition for you and then how you obviously ended up um you know involved with david beckham well it's it's um yeah thinking back i'm not sure it was the the right thing to do i was i wasn't lost uh, after football you know i was i was retiring and then i was coming to the end of, of my career and you start wondering what you're going to do what you're not going to do and then you have a million things going through your mind and um i'd already during my career um uh, just been in touch with a few agents, and uh, the book will, will will further like bring it out in more detail. But you know, I helped Schwarzer and, and Popovich and a few boys um, nail deals through an agent friend of mine in the UK while I was still playing. Um, and then I, I kind of finished at Reading, and a, a friend of mine, Sue Roberts, that was the head of Foster's Courage in the UK, said, "Look, I know David Beckham's agent, and I think you'd kind of, you know, fit into that scene." Uh, so. She organised for a meeting with me. I went to see him. He, he and a guy, John Holmes, um, managed Lineker, David Platt, Beckham, Gerard, Owen, the whole lot. You name was like 70, 80% of the top players in the EPL at the time. Um, I walked into his office. Sue had told me if he gives you more than five minutes, you've done okay. Um, I called her back and I said, he gave me an hour. I think I'm in. Wow. And, um, you know, it was... Um, it was kind of like, how do I impress someone like that? And so I took an old, did some photocopies and put a, a map of the world down. And, you know, he said, oh, do you have a marketing degree? Do you have a business degree? I, I said, no, but I know if you have the best players, all the big brands come to you. I said, because I've just seen six girls in your office that I walked past and they just sit there and answer the phone all day for Beckham deals from big brands. And uh, he, he looked at me. I said, well, he said, well, what have you got then, son? Um, I said, well, I've got a world map here and I've put a name in every, in every country of the person that I can call to find out who the best kid in that country is. And I started with Argentina and I said, Maradona. <laughs> and then I went through the whole world and put my contact in there. And um, he said... Uh, you know all these people? Yeah. I said, if I didn't, can you guys still see me? No, no we not. look like we've lost your screen, but we can hear you. Definitely still hear you. Hi, guys. It's gone. Do you need to plug in your phone? Can you can you hear me? No, yep. maybe, maybe we can hear you. Maybe try reconnect again. Hello? Hello. Yeah. We've still can you hear us? See you. Uh, Apologies, all. We're 
having some technical difficulties with Andy's connection. And, of course, as, and right as he's getting into the juicy bits, Stolich, about his time with David Beckham and how he was able to become his agent, I'm sure Andy's just reconnecting. Um, But until we get him back, I mean, I think it's fantastic to see there's been so much engagement right across the board to everyone that's tuning in um, and joining us so far. Uh, it's been fantastic to have Andy Bernal on board. Um, so many, so many views on what's going on with Australian football as well. And I think that's been really interesting to hear Andy's views. I mean, I certainly am in support of his comments with respect to, ta- to Canberra and why we don't have an A-League team. Of course, it's coming from a place of bias, but also from a place of logic. We are the, the nation's capital and to not have a football team there, um, I think it really is a bit of a disgrace. Um, but Stolich, your you so far on on the things that Andy's had to say it's been pretty pretty damn compelling yeah fascinating and, and I guess this is the weird thing of like why haven't we um heard from this guy in mm-hmm. such a long time you know he's obviously well connected in in the footballing world and you know he's got a lot of strong opinions and a lot of passion for the game which is what we want um but yeah we've uh we've been really excited to have Andy on and it, it's been it's been great but yeah what have, what have you thought so far Luce? Oh, I've just loved it. And it, you know, goes back to what you just said there. Um, why haven't we heard from guys like Andy more often? Um, you know, why haven't they been brought into the fold? And it's only really recently under, you know, James Johnson that we've seen that there's been this push to try and include more of the, the, the former stars uh, that featured in the Socceroos and the Matildas by putting together this starting 11 panel. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's years and years gone by that we've missed opportunities to, to sort of capitalise on their strength and their knowledge and their experience that they've amassed globally. Uh, and I think that's a real shame, Stolich, in all of this. Um, and, you know, we haven't lent on them in the past. It looks as though we're just about to get Andy back shortly, hopefully, fingers yeah. crossed. But he is working on a book um, and he is expecting um, to for the book to be released, uh, I think he said sometime next year uh, in 2021. So we'll, we'll eagerly be awaiting the release of that one. It is called Riding Shotgun. And there are a bunch of chapters in which he talks about, uh, you know, being, of course, David Beckham's uh, agent and minder um, and his role with the Galacticos as well. Uh, his entire career also, which which spanned over an impressive spell in, in Spain and then, you know, before he headed over uh, to have stints with Ipswich and Nottingham Forest and Reading, of course, he was a capped socceroo. Um, and I don't think that many people know about him in the way that we do know about the likes of your Vidukas, your Kules, your Bosniches, etc. Um, he wasn't as big of a name, but he certainly had a big role to play as part of a generation that featured so heavily in Australian football and is one that we still certainly praise today. Uh, Michael Long, the number of people you guys have on this show is unbelievable, their credentials, and yet nobody losing their knowledge. It's so true. It is so, so true. Uh, Michael Long, one of our regular guests here on the World Game Wednesday. It's fantastic to have your company again. Andy, we've got you back, but unfortunately we can't see you. I know. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Okay, yeah. well, let's talk. Yeah, let's <laughs> talk. Let's get talking. Uh, I, I don't know why you can't see me, but let's talk. It's all good. All good right. on you. Pick up. We were at the point where you were just um, pointing out that you had all of these contacts globally. Yeah, um, that was kind of how I nailed the, the SFX job. And um, uh, it led on to my work with Tim Cahill. Um, uh, and that's a particular story in 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 one of the chapters. And... Uh, it's a great story that I, I really believe um, um, the Australian public know nothing about, um, um, but it's a fantastic story that, that led to Timmy going to Everton and um, he was my first client ever. Wow. Timmy. Yes, nobody knows that. Wow. 
Fantastic. What, what was the reputation of Timmy at the time? a lot of, a lot of unknowns. What was the reputation of Timmy at the time? Yeah, because uh, obviously he was he became a legend, but you know I guess he was a bit underrated uh, early on in his career. Well, you got a kid that was, you know, not really wanted in Australia that that went over and by you know, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen was dominating, you know, the lower tiers of English football, first division, second division, um, and you know how hard that is to do. That's almost impossible. And you got a kid he was playing a little deeper in that Roy Keane role. And just kick the shit out of everything that moved, and then you know, then then with the explosive energy, get forward and get on the end of things. And then there was a shift of, of kind of management at, at Millwall, and and they thought, well, he you know he gets on the end of things. His, his timing is is immaculate, superb. It's kind of like he's got a sixth sense, and um, he was moved a little bit more forward, and then just the goals kept coming, the goals kept coming, the goals kept coming, and. Um, and I was told by SFX, who were the number one sports agency at the time in the UK, and uh, they were owned by Michael Jordan's agent. Uh, um, and they said, we can't get Tim. And I said, I'll get you, Tim. Wow. There you go. Wow. wow. That, that lends on, on to a, a bigger story. But, um, yeah, he was, he was my first client. And then from that, uh, uh, the company found out I would speak Spanish. I played in Spain and got together with Beckham and um, we kind of um, made a plan that maybe one day the boy would play in Spain or Italy. And uh, off I went on adventures around Spain and Italy for a year, uh, meeting with all the clubs. Wow. What, what were some of the clubs you met with? In Spain? Well, in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, as part of my role with SFX, uh, Real Madrid, Atlético de Madrid, Sevilla, Real Betis, uh, wow. Valencia, wow. uh, Athletic Bilbao, Barcelona, Espanyol, uh, all of them. Uh, in Italy, Inter Milan, AC Milan, Fiorentina, Roma, Napoli. Wow. And what was it like to work so closely with Beckham? Uh, well, it, it's it's um it's the most amazing, uh, um, difficult. Um, uh, it's hard to put into words, and I have managed to put into words in, in the book. Uh, almost surreal um, to be followed every single day by hundreds and hundreds of people. Have wow. no pri- have no privacy. Every day when you go to training is like a scene out of you know the Bodyguard on Netflix. You know, you're chased by 50, 60, 70 cars and motorbikes, um, you know, at high speeds, 150, 180, 200 kilometres an hour, high-powered cars, high-powered motorbikes. Um, uh, there's one chapter in the book where um, I'm involved in a car crash with Victoria's sister um, and um, very Diana-like. And, uh, you know, things that that as an agent you don't think you're going to have to be thrust into. Um you know, um, but impact you later on in, in life. Um, you know, for me, the greatest thing that, you know, it was a wonderful time, you know, to, to, to ride shotgun with the greatest athlete on the planet at the time. Uh, to meet Ronaldo through him, Roberto Carlos, Zidane, Figo, Raul, you know, to be at parties with them, to be considered by one of them, one of them as a footballer, not an agent. Um, 
just beautiful stories. And, you know, but after it comes a little bit of aftermath. And then, you know, um, I was offered at the time around $2 million to to snitch on him, to wow. to say not nice things about him, uh, to confirm things that had been written in British tabloids and mm. uh, for not for not saying those things. Um, uh, they come at you in different ways and they try and ruin you as a person, as a character. Um, you know, but things happen in life and, and uh, you, know, you wait around for the right time. And, you know, I was very lucky. I was a part of a class action uh, against the news of the world. You know, my name came up with a lot of famous, famous people and uh, we beat Murdoch in court. And uh, the, the book is, is part of a, a redemption type thing where, um, uh, you know, uh, it's time to rewrite history in the right way. Yeah. And what was your relationship like with Beckham itself? Like what, what was he like at the time? You know, he was 28, he's moving countries to a new team. How, how was his demeanour? Uh, he was fine. He, um, you know, he was captain of England at the time, uh, captain of Manchester United, and, and he was joining Galacticos. Um, mm. But still, you know, it's amazing how you can be still nervous like a young kid, you know, joining a new side, you know, and especially when you don't know the language. You know, it's hard moving into a new dressing room, uh, you know, just as a player, you know. But, you know, when there's 25 other world-class players around, you know, and they're having conversations and you don't understand anything, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's pretty freaky. It can be pretty freaky. So, you know, if I've, I've, I'm very close to that. We, we went through all those emotions, all those things, you know, I – um, I was by his side 24-7. You know, if Ronaldo wanted to speak to him, he called me. Mm. Andy, quiero hablar con David. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but David seemed to settle in Madrid quite. He seemed to enjoy Spain and, and really kind of take to life there. Was that the experience? Yep. No. Look, the first the first three months were the most difficult and um, he loved it. He loved it. Um, I'm not sure... Victoria was keen on moving to to Spain initially. Um, in the end, they kind of settled in. Um, but the three months, you know, that initial phase of him integrating into Real Madrid, into Spanish society, um, despite him loving Spain, was tough. You know, followed every day, um, you know, people trying to, you know, make money off of photos, paparazzi everywhere, rumours in newspapers. Um, you're seen with anyone and, and straight away you're having an affair, um, you know. But no one comes to the source. No one comes to the people and asks, is this true? Is that not true? So, um, yeah, he – I'll tell you one thing about David and, and a lot of those footballers, but in particular David, because of his marketing commitments and a lot of other things that were going on, he was – just a fantastic, uh, fantastic player and, and, and an athlete and a whole package because it's not easy to be um, a marketing icon and 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 fulfil all those marketing things that you have to do during days um, and then train and then deliver on a weekend. You know, not many people are capable of that. You know, I mean, if you look at Jordan's Last Dance. You know, things, you know, the, the ads, the commercials, the everything, it's tiring. You can do a commercial, you know, run through an airport, you know, for an hour, you know, uh, 
know, doing something for Visa or a, a rental car company or something and then go to training and then play against Barcelona on the weekend. After a while, it takes its toll. And, you know, some of these great players, um, it may be, be that's why they're great. You know, they're able to genetically, you know, cope with all these things. Mm. But he, um, you know, initially um, it took him a little while to, to, to feel really comfortable. Um, but Valdano would talk to me every day, you know. Uh, Jorge Valdano, the great Argentine, you know, player that was a Real Madrid legend too. And he would talk to me every day. He was the director of football. Butragueño was the director of football as well. Butragueño spoke English as well. Jorge would speak to me a lot in Spanish. And, and you know, he would every now and then he would just call me and he'd say one little thing. You know, Jorge is known as the the football philosopher. And he would say, can you please tell David tonight that I think his right foot is the equivalent of Maradona's left foot? And he'd leave it at that. Then he'd hang up. Wow. You know, and David would say, well, who was that? And I'd go, oh, it's just got a one, one phrase from Jorge Valdano. He wanted me to tell you before you went to bed. <laughs> Um, listening to all of the commitments that he was obligated to fulfil, I mean, I think he summed it up perfectly there because he was the overall package. Um, he was someone that you could market on a global scale, but also a global footballer that already had that appeal. Uh, and it just it resonated with with football fans, with women all over the world, um, but also with the tabloids. And I know that it's something that you've also posted up quite frequently on your Instagram page, where you've, you you know you you put up some of the headlines, the salacious headlines that were levelled against him during that period of his life where Rebecca Luz came out and said that she was involved in a scandal with him and then that led to several other women coming out and saying that they had been involved in some kind of sexual tryst with him and here's an example of one of them. Suspicious Posh screamed at me to put David on the phone but he was in a bedroom with a model at 3am. Um, you were sort of with uh, Bex when he was going through all of these scandals. What was that torrid time like in his life, Andy? Um, well, I was with him 24-7, so anything Lou said, anything anybody said, I was there. So um, whether he did, whether he didn't, it's nobody's business, to be honest with you, and, and I don't think it's a nice thing uh, for people to, to run to newspapers and, uh, you know, uh, and tell stories, you know. It was it was difficult for him, you know. Um, you know it's difficult, you know. If you're married, you know, if you have children, uh, you're in a new company, a new country, and you know, every, every second day there's a paper report that you've slept with so and so, you've slept with so and so, you've slept with so and so, and um, very difficult, you know, and it's it's hard for a wife, you know, and uh, I think it was a a tumultuous period for their relationship, um, you know, I, I've I'm married for the second time. Um, and so I kind of I get all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, it was it was on, on top of the football. It was tough that British tabloids every single day were uh, were trying to find things on him. Were trying to sell newspapers, um, and um, every now and then uh, there are people that will talk and that will say things uh, that sometimes are untrue. But the papers will print untrue to sell two hundred million dollars worth of front page stories. Mm. 
What was she like, Birch? What was Victoria Beckham like? Because, I mean, I'm I'm, unashamedly, I'm a big fan of hers. Of course, I I love her clothing line and everything that she's achieved in in the fashion world. Um, So that's just the the bit of the girl coming out of me. I'm not just all about the football. Um, But what was she actually like to interact with? And and they seem like they're a very in love couple. I mean, to to be together for this long too, Birch, is incredible. Yeah. She was, um, you know what, there's a lot of people out there, there's there's a lot of, you know, on social media, everybody's got their, um, everybody um, has their opinion. Um, the time I was with her, uh, she was fine with me. Um, mm-hmm. She was in the process of relaunching her her music career and, and Damon Dash was a part of that, Jay-Z. Um, you know, she was at times looked a little warned and distressed at, at things that were being put in papers. So mm-hmm. it took its toll on on people around everywhere. But, you know, the times that I was with her, the times that I took her shopping, the times that uh, we were together on, on particular things, um, she was fine. You know, I would pick her up and, and take her to the stadium and, and, you know, we'd have security cars, you know, we'd have security in front of us, behind us, SAS commandos, Cuban intelligence officers, um, it was um, everything was like a presidential uh, motorcade. It was um, I. It's a film. It's a film. It's it's a Netflix documentary. It's a Netflix series. Um, because the first time I sat in the car with either of them, I, I rang my mum and I said, "I'm in a movie here, you know, <laughs> and I think I might die. I think I might die one day in a car with David Beckham." Wow. Gosh, that is terrifying. What about your is- before I bounce over to Stolich um, to, to breeze through these remaining um, subjects with you, but what about your time with the Galacticos overall? Uh, and, you know, the, the play, I mean, you spoke about Jorge Valdano. I mean, you've met some of the football's greatest icons, Andy, and it's incredible um, to, to listen to your stories. But what was it like being a part of that, the, the true Galacticos era? Oh, look, um, where do I start? Um, you know, Zidane, Ronaldo Nazario, Roberto Carlos, Figo, you know, guys that were not considered Galacticos, but they played in that team. You know, I asked all the Galacticos who they thought the Galactico was. Um, <laughs> that that wasn't part of considered the Galactico group, and they all said Raul. Yeah, wow. You know, um, Ronaldo Nazario, he's he's just uh, on and off the pitch. He has the last dance. He, <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, from from scoring hat tricks at the Bernabeu to ordering busloads of women for parties. Woo! Just you know, and, and you'd go to his house and and just amazing. He's second floor apartment was full of everything that he'd won you know and um just wow you know when you when you you know i've been studying exactly and kind of doing research for things that he achieved you know i feel ashamed to to say that i didn't know the extended amount of, of of things that he'd won you know just a wow um, but the museum that he had at home was, was fantastic. But it was, um, look, again, there's a whole chapter on that. But his, his place was like Carnival, you know, Rio and Carnival every day. Like, you know, <laughs> like 
and he shared with friends. He's very, very loving. Him and Carlos. Carlos was there all the time, and um, just you know, Andy, Andy, every minute he texts me, Andy, where, where's David? Where are you? Come to the house. We've got a party. Like every day, had a party, party, party. Um, yeah. yeah, and he'd say, and I said, well, do you rest? He goes, oh, okay. In Brazil, we have to be happy to be able to play. <laughs> Very much uh, the you'd have to say, right, Stolich? Yeah, well, I even remember, and Andy, maybe you can confirm this, but uh, when uh, you know, Ronaldo told a story that uh, Florentino Perez, the president, came to him and said, "Listen, Ronaldo, why don't you be a little bit more like Figo? We want we want you to be like Figo. Figo's always at home, and you know, very professional." And Ronaldo said, "Well, if my wife looked like Figo, I also would be home, but that's not yeah. the case." <laughs> Uh, yeah, he was um, he was funny like that. You know what? Even if his wife looked like Vigo's, I don't think Ronnie would have stayed home anyway, or, <laughs> or, or, or stopped, or stopped partying. Um, but just a just a beautiful man who, you know, looked after his family from Brazil, who um, had four or five guys, you know, lounging by his pool all day, and mm. you know, he said they but- helped me when I had nothing. Now they do nothing. But I've heard, I remember even seeing uh, David Beckham and Ronaldo went live on Instagram maybe a couple of months ago. um, And Beckham said to Ronaldo how much Ronaldo helped him when he got to Madrid, inviting him always for barbecues at his house and all the fun that they had. And Ronaldo, you know, he he speaks pretty good English as well. He, He seemed like he was a really nice guy, quite humble for someone that successful. Extremely, extremely, extremely humble. And um, they took to each other from day one. Um, uh, yeah, they they were special. I think Ronaldo's English has got better over the years. It wasn't that great then. Mm. Um, uh, lucky for me because I was I was in every conversation. I was, um, you know, I would be in in, in physio rooms, in, in dressing rooms, and it was access all areas. And, and the boys all felt comfortable. They knew my my football background. Um, the Spanish part of of of, of me, um, and uh, you know, to be allowed into those inner circles is very difficult. They need to they need to really know that someone is is of a, a certain integrity and, and character, and um, you know, because uh, they're susceptible to to people talking all the time, and it's it's mm. it's chaos. And Spain, especially, you know, places like Italy, and that, you know, there are. There are magazines that make their living from scandalous and salacious crap every day, um, mm. but that's life, you know. That's what you get, you know, for being part of that that kind of galactic. So, so what can you do? Can I ask Andy what was your favorite time or your most fond memory of that time you know being because you know for us we remember all these great players this great team and but you were inside you got to experience something that no one else will ever experience what was your favorite moment of that experience uh, you know what on I enjoyed all uh, I enjoyed understanding um the different cultures and, 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 and kind of beliefs and, and philosophies of football that each one brought to that to the table, to that team. You know, David brought an English background. You had Zidane, French, Figo, Portuguese, the Brazilians. Um, 
people, you know, would bring a different, um, uh, uh, something different, a uh, different seasoning to, to even every training session. Yeah. Um, if, if, if you want me to say my favourite times, and they were because it was escape from the reality of, of being chased by paparazzi and photographed every day. I loved it once you got into the training ground, and I loved sitting there, and, and I would babysit Brooklyn, you know, and we'd sit there and watch a five-a-side, you know, Ronaldo, Beckham, Roberto Carlos, Figo, Raul against uh, Casilla. Um, da, 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 da. That's yeah, So we'd watch five-a-sides, um, you know, between all of these guys, you know. Um, that was just amazing, you know, and I'd sit there for an hour watching watching Zidane's first touch, bringing it down, Um and, and and understanding from someone like me that would like maybe to progress in, in coaching or or mentoring you know the high level athletes, um, understanding exactly how they tick, what makes them tick, and um, you know you look at Zidane and then, you know people just like I said before you you just look at the flow, you look at Ronaldo and you look at the tricks. But you don't look and understand that Ronaldo's 20, 30 meter sprint is, is faster than you know any of the greatest Olympic athletes ever. Mm. You know, mm. um Zidane's balance, Barishnikov, like mm. the greatest ballerina. Um, just a, mm. amazing. You know, you look at Casillas, you know, the way he moved, the angles, you know, 150 caps for Spain, captain. Um, and I study this and I go, how is he? He's very similar to Matty Ryan, but why is he a little bit better or not a little bit better? Or what does he do that if Matty kind of knew this, Matty could go to that level? You know, they're the things that I think, um, whilst all the madness was around me, I found peace and tranquility at the training ground. Mm. Mm. Because ultimately, I'm from that stock. I want to ask you, Andy, um, as we sort of look to, to, to wind up the show shortly, uh, you know, it hasn't all just been about the glitz and the glamour and being David Beckham. Of course, there have been a lot of difficulties that you've had to face um, throughout your time and your footballing journey, um, whether it was as a player or off the pitch in, in your various roles. But um, it, it's been laced with some turmoil and some real challenging times, um, grappling with bouts of depression, also being arrested, uh, you know, and feeling like you had to find yourself again. Can you talk us through some of those moments um, and, and how you were able to come out on the other side of it? Of course. Um, look, I think um, there was a period there after football and during my time with the Beckhams and then further on, um, you know, um, sometimes you got to man up and, and say, look, I, I fell, you know, to, to you know, my failures and weaknesses and, and uh, I became addicted, you know, I had a substance abuse problem and, you know, for a while you can function and, and um, you know, but then it gets a little bit out of control. Um, but I'm in a scenario now where um, I've addressed a lot of those issues and, and I'm in a good space. Um, you know, in the middle of that, there was an arrest um, where things were, were said and written that are not entirely true. And, and this book is going to you know, debunk and dispel a lot of that. And then it was part of a, a higher agenda and a higher powerful game by the British tabloids, uh, the London police um, and top sports management companies that want to try and, and, and bring you down. And, 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 and if you do talk, uh, that it doesn't have any value or relevance. Um, so, yeah, there was an arrest in Reading. Uh, but what is written? Uh, people were very, very, very surprised to hear that 
it's not what happened. And it, it's part of a, a, a grander a grander event, a grander, a grander scheme of things and, and, and part of why I was a victim of one of the greatest media scandals in, in British history and probably world history. I was a victim of Operation Wheating. People can Google that if they want. And, um, yeah, that was all part of, of, of what happened to me and, and part of why it happened it was because I didn't bow to them and I didn't take money to rat on David Beckham. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny world, you know, do you, you know, they blackmail you, you, but sometimes, you know, and they only want one answer. This is the answer you need to give us. Mm. Even if it's true or not, mm. you know, mm. they don't care. Um, so, you know, that was part of, um, you know, uh, my therapy and, uh, you know, kind of, where I am now, uh, very, very um, mind liberating and, and spiritually liberating for me. Um, you know, it's not nice. You, you have a lot of success and, and one or two little things, you know, can stain, you know, a, a lot of success, you know. So all those things will come out in the book. Um, I find a real peace in it. Um, I'm in a real good space now, uh, you know, and, and eager to move on. Um you know, with 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 a little bit of history rewritten, um, you know, emails from Scotland Yard, you know, uh, were fantastic for me. You know, I was able to show my dad who I disappointed a little bit. I said, "Look, this is why things happen, Dad." And then, you know, um, so yeah, so it was um, uh, kind of redemption in the end. Um, but also, um, you know, the book is a little bit about um, you know, it's a migrant story, a football story covers mental health it's a substance abuse story it's redemption it's it, it's a story of, of new dreams of new goals um a story of never giving up a story of, 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 of thinking like a winner all the time so um you know at 54 um we're going to open up a new chapter Mm. And you were able to also find love again, Andy, uh, before I bounce over to college with a few more questions. Uh, and that was something that really helped you get through these difficult times. You were able to marry again. As you said earlier at the top of the show, you're a grandfather now, um, which is just incredible. But um, talk us through why your love ended up saving you. Well, I, um, look, I, I was married initially um, to a lovely lady called Catherine, and then we had Isabella. Um, we went our, our separate ways, um, but we're still friends. Um, and then there was a period where, you know, for 10, 11 years, I, I was kind of without a partner with, with football and uh, things like that. And um, look, I think, you know, it's a real kind of almost proven fact that, that you know, you, you're as good as the lady, you know, by your side. And, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I met a lovely girl down here um, called Janie Wignall, who's Father was into sport. He was Australian speedway champion back in the days at, at Tralee, and um, her family embraced me with all my good points and all my faults. And um, you know, Janie was—you know—I think we were maybe two two lost ships sailing in the ocean, and we found each other, and um, we're just best mates. And she said, "You need to tell the world your story. You need to tell the world some home truths. You need to tell the world why, why not." Um, why things happened, why they didn't happen. Um, you know, you're the son of Spanish migrants who became, you know, the first player, you know, 
Socceroo, Australian Socceroo, to play in the country that his parents had to leave because they couldn't eat. Mm. You know, it's it's a, a pioneering story. It's, um, you know, it, it's it, it's something that you know, with all all the good and bad points, you know, I'd like to be able to to stand in front of young A League players, young national team players, and say, look, when I when I did all these things and I was doing this, this and that, I was a winner. When I chose this path, it didn't work out. It wasn't so good. You know, I think um, I think we're in a society now where where we start accepting, you know, people's failures and people's, you know, high success. And, and um, that's kind of a, you know, why I'm writing the book as well, because it's, it's um if I can leave some sort of legacy and, and, and be able to help future generations, um, you know, I'd I'd go to the grave at peace. Mm. That's one of the most important things. Stolich, um some more questions for Andy, particularly around the likes of working with Tom Dorgich. Yeah, Andy, well, we, we wanted to discuss. So can you just explain kind of your relationship with Tom Rogic? Uh, and, yeah, I, I don't know if not too many people would know about that. Well, it was... Again, through through Ron Smith, um, uh, I don't know how many years ago now, but Tom was 16, 17 years of age here in Canberra and, and nobody wanted him. And Ronnie said, look, I've got this kid, he's playing for the ANU, Australian National University, second or third division Canberra, which is pretty crap, to be honest with you. Um, and he said, come and watch him play and see what you think. He's kind of got that Zidane flow about him. And um, so I went down and watched and sat with his dad and, his dad said, what do you think? And I said, 95% shit and 5%. He just did a couple of things that I could only dream of doing. Wow. <laughs> wow. And then I said, if he's going to play at any higher levels in Australia and become a socceroo, then uh, we need to build a better athlete. Um, so... Tom was lucky. Uh, we were both lucky at the time. I was working as strength conditioning coach for the London Olympic Games boxing team that included Jeff Horn. And um, so I took Tom training with the Olympic Games boxing team for three months. And um, he, except for the fighting, he never missed any of the other sessions. And from that point on, he, he went and, and won his Nike Academy scholarship and then he went to Celtic. And um, look, again, he's a fantastic player. And, and the level that he goes to, if he goes to a level next, is dependent on... on how good an athlete he is. You know, technically he's got everything, um, you know, but at higher levels, um, you know, that athleticism in people is 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 what makes the Messis, the Maradonas, the Ronaldos, the Ibrahimovic's. Um, it's the quality of athlete that really is part of the whole encompassing product of, of a top footballer. Um, and again, if, if um, that's up to Tom. If he gets a little quicker, if he does this, he does that, you know, he might be comfortable where he's mm. at now. Um, you know, it's the one thing that's very difficult to control in in the minds of, of players, the minds of athletes. Um, you know, uh, 26, 27, does someone want to do extra training to become a tenth of a second quicker over 10 yards, which might be the difference between him staying at a Celtic or going to a Chelsea? Yeah. The thing. 
And so, but, so at the moment, he's not really getting a lot of game time at Celtic. And we're, we're you know, a few years ago, he was an absolute legend there and was scoring amazing goals. Do you think it's time for him to possibly move on? Is that something that he's considering? Well, I think it's, um, you know, it's kind of no secret that, you know, he played a lot with Brendan Rodgers and Neil Lennon uh, probably has a different view of him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, at the end of the day, if, if, if you want to stay in national team, you know, um, in the eye of the national team coach, if you um, you want that to continue, then yes, you, you need to be playing. You need to be um, playing first 11. Uh, and it's not like, you know, that's the game of football. You know, he had five, six years of where he was a legend there and then and, you know, things change, a new manager comes in, a new coach comes in and uh, you don't... Um, you don't feature as much. And do you do you then move? Do you knuckle down and try and win the manager over? Um, football's a real weird, funny game. You know, over mm. overnight there's two injuries and all of a sudden you're the superstar captain again. It's, what do you think you should do, Andy? I mean, you've spoken a lot about what you could do if you wanted to, but what would your advice be to do in this scenario? What I think he should do? Hmm. Get into the first 11 at Celtic and then you can talk Turkey. <laughs> what about like, but, but, but I would say it about Tom, I would say it about everybody. You know, if, if you're on a big move somewhere, if you're playing for, you know, if you're playing, if you're a squad member at Sydney FC and you're not in the first 11, and you're telling Andy to get you to Queen's Park Rangers or Reading or Wolves, how can I do that when you don't even play, like, at Sydney FC? Mm. You know, and especially, like, once you get to levels like like Tom and Aaron Moy and these people, you know, clubs want three, four, five million, ten million pounds in, in transfer fees. Mm. So, um, you know, they have to justify to a board, you know, Will we pay this amount of money for someone that's in the first 11? Possibly. Um, but if he's not in the first 11, why? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there could be a multitude of reasons. Um, you know, that's kind of um, – uh, you know, what I do find is that if you, uh, you know, if you are in football at any level and you want to move somewhere and you want to play at a higher level, Make sure you're in the first 11 at the level you're at and starring because if you're not, it's a hard sell. Mm. Mm. That's um, just how it is. That's right, that's football, right? And and it is ruthless and I think that it goes to your point earlier that you said that is that you almost can't explain that ruthlessness to people anymore without hurting your parents' feelings or without, you know, it, it dampening things. But ultimately that's the, the business that we're in. If you want to be the best, you have to be the best. Um, and I want to talk about your view on the, the current Socceroos generation and the future of Australian football. Um, you know, of course, you've worked quite closely being a scout as well and, and trying to identify future talent and existing talent for us. Uh, but what are your feelings and sentiments around how we'll go for World Cup qualification um, and your impressions of this existing generation? Well, you see, there was a time where... I've got a photo that I've put up on Instagram and it's, um, you know, of a Socceroo squad, you know, camp that we had with Terry Venables in the UK. And uh, we were all playing 
either in Italy, Germany, England, uh, EPL Championship. We were all first 11 players. A bunch mm. of 25 boys from Australia were playing first 11 with their clubs in the UK, in Europe. Why can't we say that now? Why can't we? Because I really believe, you know, for many reasons that we've discussed, the game has changed. You know, I would play um, Sydney United v Sydney Olympic and, and you know, all, all the characteristics that are required at higher levels that you see Madrid and Barcelona players, you know, it would go from, from, from skill, from, uh, from being warriors and battling for points. Um, those traits would come through the Croatian community, through the, the Greek community, through the Italian community, through the Spanish community. We've kind of lost all that. It became sterile. It became, you know, I want to watch a training session of some under 16s or uh, wasn't even young soccerers. It was Joey's or something at, at DAOS. You know, all I could see was bibs and cones. So there's like a million cones on this football pitch. It was like Hong Kong arriving at Hong Kong airport at night. Like, you know, like... Uh, everything had gone out of the footballs. Two played a three, played a four. We, we, we went through it before. Bounce and bounce it here and bounce it there. You know, Eddie Thompson used to say to me, get it out of your feet, son. If you can find Viduka, that's your first option. If you can't, then you look to the midfield and then get it back and then go out the other side. You know, But now it's just kind of, they're, they're so ingrained in, in, we've got to do this. We've got to split here. We've got to pass it three pass to four, bounce. Four pass to seven, bounce. Then bounce. And it's like, um, do you know what? Get it in the mixer, son, and put it in the yeah. back. <laughs> and and as, as harsh as that is, as as old school as it is, you know, I watch went to watch Sydney FC Academy once. So Real Madrid or Man United get a corner and they put it in the box. They put it in the box and Ramos gets up there or whoever it is and they're trying to get their head on the end. Sydney FC, get a corner. They've got three guys in the team, the two centre halves in the central midfield, six foot two. They leave them back and they take a short corner. Stupid. Well, I don't get it. Like, mm. and if I say something, Andy's the bad guy. Mm. You're the you good guy. I mean? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you two love me. <laughs> no, a lot of people love you. The people that we've had engaging with us from the very beginning of the show have almost stayed right throughout the program to listen to your incredible Thank journey, you. incredible and story. I really, um, I really appreciate all their support. You know, I, I, I just, I say it from the heart. You know, and and because I care about football and I care about the future of this country with football. You know, why can't we? You know, people say to me. You know, when I go to Auckland and visit my, my son-in-law and daughter and, you know, the All Blacks uh, are the greatest nation in rugby union for a long, long time, you know, and, you know, you, you're talking about a team that is based on a local competition, you know, that, that isn't in Europe. So why can't we have a local competition for football that produces world-class players that can form a team called the Socceroos or the Matildas that goes over to Europe and beats them all? Mm. So mm -hmm. it's, it's not so much about where our players are going to play in different competitions. Why aren't we creating something at home? Because there's your example. The All Blacks have dominated rugby union for years and years and years and years. And all they have is a local competition. It's true. It's a very food, good point. Food for thought, huh? 
Yeah, and we've had a lot of food from your thoughts. Don't worry, we'll be going down on this for days. Uh, Stolly, any more questions for Andy before we look to wrap up? Yeah, Andy, I just wanted to know if you're still in touch with any of these kind of, you know, the legends of the Galacticos and, and if not, kind of when did that stop? Not much because um, football is kind of like, you know, when you hang around people, you you chat a lot, you have good times. Um, you know, I haven't seen Ronaldo for a long time, but if I needed to, you know, if I discovered a 16, 17-year-old kid here that I thought, you know, could become a top player one day, um, I wouldn't have any hesitation in contacting Ronaldo, who is the owner of Real Valladolid right now. And we'd go over and um, I'm sure the first thing he would say is, Andy, let's go play a game of golf. <laughs> I don't want to talk football. Let's play golf. Um, and maybe maybe get Rogic to Valladolid. Well, who knows? Who knows? Um, you know, the, the problem now with the COVID thing is a lot of players that are on fantastic wages at their current clubs, mm. you know, because of COVID now and the, the market kind of change, you know, you now want to take a guy into to Spain that's on X amount in Britain, which who pay well, you know, only the top four or five teams in Italy or Spain can afford those wages. You know, yeah. the rest of Spanish teams, uh, you know, from fifth downwards are playing a lot of their young kids. Mm. You know, if I show you, you know, if I showed you Sporting Gijon's wages compared to English Premiership wages and Celtic wages, you'd go, mm. wow. You know, um, there's a big, big difference, you know. And uh, so the problem, you know, also comes, you know, for, for players like Tommy, for, for Moy, these guys, you know, if you're going to move to a Spain and you're on very good UK wages, it's very hard to match those wages in Spain unless you go to one of the top four teams. And those top four teams usually have two or three of the greatest Brazilians or Argentinians in that position. Yeah. And what about Beckham? Do you ever get in touch with him? Anyone? No, because I haven't, I haven't needed to. Um, the last time I spoke, I said, I've just been offered $2 million to rat on you. Sleep well. And he said, thank you. <laughs> Wow, wow. I don't think he realises how lucky he is, obviously, Andy, because I think a lot of people would look at a $2 million offer and find it very appealing. Well, you know, in today's money, what is it, seven, eight million? Mm-hmm. You know, but at the end of the day, you know, you got to sleep at night, you got to look at yourself in the mirror and, and that's not me and, and, and people, uh, you know, I can run into trouble and people can write shit about this and that, but, you know, I'd, I'd like to be able to say, you know, have the world say, you know, after they read the book, there's a stand-up guy. Um, integrity mattered. You know, um, loyalty mattered. Um, respect mattered. Took incoming heat from everywhere. Um, but still did the right thing. Mm. And I think so, that's shown throughout all of your dealings, Andy. From what you've told us, of course, we're looking so forward to the release of the book. It's called Riding Shotgun. Uh, we are anticipating its release next year in 2021. Andy, you've been just fantastic today. So many of the comments coming through, like this one from Sam Quatrone. Thank you for your honesty and just being real. Loving the truth, loving the openness, uh, and and just people delighted with the fact that we've got someone of your calibre and of your experience able to put it out and lay it there on the table for everyone. Um, I 
think it's been such an educational interview for a lot of us to hear about the things that you uh, experienced. Um, you know, another one coming through from John Woodridis uh, via Facebook. Good afternoon to you, John. Thanks for your company. Awesome insight. It's just been invaluable. Andy, what is next for you? Um, what can we expect to see um, from Andy Bernal in the next few months? Well, look, I think... Um, you know, we're, we're kind of tying up all the all the book stuff, you know, for the release next year. Um, that that in itself um, has grander kind of scenarios for me. Um, you know, for example, you know, the agent world, like we touched on before, um, you know, that my time scouting with, with the Socceroos and, 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 and hanging out with Valderrama in Colombia and, and, and and cartels in Colombia while I'm scouting and things like that, that, you know, you could, you could write a, a chapter on 15 chapters, the greatest 15 players to ever come out of South America. And you spend a week with Messi, Maradona, Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, you know, where they came, where they grew up, you know, there you go. And, and, and Valderrama said he, he would sort it out for me. I can do it for you, Andy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, things like that. Um, I would like to once, the book is out and, and people know that Andy's okay. Andy's in a good spot. You know, I, I really feel that this city that I grew up in deserves an A-League team, you know, and I'd like people like Ned, your brother, involved and, and you know, three or four of us get together and, and you know, create create what the Raiders have done for Rugby League, um, you know, create, you know, a city where kids can grow up and want to play for Canberra, um, this is a fortress for us. People come to Canberra. We're going to bring you here in winter. We're going to kick the shit out of you. We're going to play way better football than you. And we're going to be national league. We're going to be the national champions. And five of the boys are going to be in the Socceroo squad. You know, and every year we sell one to Madrid or Barcelona or Manchester United or Manchester City. And then the next ones come through. And then mm. kids have something to dream for in this city. And I think just across the whole league in general, I wouldn't like to just see it happen in Canberra. I'd like to see it happen and replicated right throughout the A League because I think exactly. And and, and you know what? Yeah. If, it, if, it, if it means success, if it means um, you know, uh, I tried coaching once at, at Canberra FC for a couple of months. Um, Marco Vrikic said, "Take the reins," and, and you know, we, the, the ship was sinking, and we managed to go from I think it was fifth and got them to the the grand final. We lost on penalties. That's football, but um, you know, I enjoyed that process. Um, I think coaching is is you know, if you have a good team around you, good lieutenants, a general's only as good as the lieutenants he has, and you know, I'm sure I'd get a a world class bunch of lieutenants around me, including Ron Smith, and and then you need to be a leader. Uh, a leader of men that's what generals are and um yeah i told you i'd start in the tunnel and i don't care if it's whatever coach is on the other side he's copping it first (laughs) so basically teams and players beware because andy bernal could be coming to a tunnel near you andy you are fantastic we're such big fans of yours it's great to hear that you're doing well now that you've you know endured so many challenges throughout your footballing and your life journey but you've been able to come out on the other side of it as i mentioned of course andy is the author of a a book that will be released next year called writing shotgun in which he details all of his personal accounts across his footballing journey uh and it all starts from just being a, a young boy born to Spanish 
Jewish immigrants here who arrived to Australia, who settled in Canberra and who raised a boy to, 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 to be true to himself, to, to have good values and to hold himself in good stead. You've experienced great success both on and off the field, Andy. It has been an absolute honour to have you with us here on the World Game Live. Uh, we hope to reconnect with you again uh, as the months uh, go on and, and we look forward to chatting to you, of course, also once the book drops. So make sure you get uh, that out soon because we're looking so forward to it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your support. You love having me on the show. Everybody that's commented, thank you. Um, much appreciated. Um, I'm, I don't know how this phone of mine has gone nuts and you haven't been able to see me for a while, but um, Lucy and Nick, um, again, much love. And any time you want me on, just call and we can talk about anything in football. If there's any Spanish football on, um, unknown to many people, I think I'm kind of an expert on it. So um, I'd love to help out. Yeah, Nick would certainly love that, especially when you start getting into Barcelona and all of their woes. Very much well, appreciate that. <laughs> I can take you up to the boardroom and we can ask them, Nick. Oh, don't, don't take me up this week. It's going to be a lot of pressure this week. <laughs> Oh, Andy, thank you so much. And to everyone who tuned in today, of course, it's been fabulous to have your company. We come to you live every Monday from 1pm Australian Eastern Standard Time for the World Game Show. Of course, I'm sure you might have seen also that we've had a promo for tomorrow's A-League dedicated program live from 1.30pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. We've got Melbourne City superstar and also soccer Jamie McLaren joining us. So make sure, in addition to some other special guests who will be coming on with us, but make sure you tune into that one to talk all things Australian football. Today we've been covering a whole host of things with the great Andy Bernal and we thank him for his time for a lot of the stories of course that we will be discussing tomorrow any of the latest news or opinion pieces that you're quite thirsty and hungry for to sink your teeth into across uh, football not just domestically but abroad you can head to the World Game website but for now on behalf of myself Nick Stoll who has been an absolute legend in teeing this up with Andy Bernal people saying thank you Lucy it's not me this is all my wonderful colleague over there Nick Stoll um, coming to you from his home that's organised all of this with Andy so well done to you Stolich um, we'll be back well with done you Andy. but yes well done to Andy but on behalf of myself Stolich Andy and the entire team at the World Game it's thank you so much for company we love being here every week and we look forward to seeing you again tomorrow but for now though it's goodbye take care